Pray with me. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you are mighty and that in your might you have given victory to your people. Thank you that in your might you have established a people and a people who can assemble this morning as a representation of your gospel victory. As we gather in this body, in this church this morning, it is a confession and exaltation, a doxology to your might and your glory and your kingdom that is forever and ever. Father, as we open your word this morning, would you sanctify us by it and would you pull us into your church more that we might display the gospel well as we live in the horizontal union that you have given through the vertical work of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, occasionally, something comes along that takes on a purpose other than what it was intended for, and that purpose gains so much traction that the original purpose is lost altogether. Take, for example, the Frisbee. In the 19th century, a man named William Russell Frisbee bought a bakery in Connecticut, which he called Frisbee Pie Company. The bakery grew beyond expectation, and by 1956, the bakery was producing as many as 80,000 pies per day. The baked goods, typically pies and cookies, came in plate-shaped tins with the name Frisbee Pies imprinted on them. Well, legend has it that Yale University uh, students were the first to discover a secondary use for the type, the python. They began to throw them around campus, and the name Frisbee caught on, and today the Frisbee is better known as a toy than as a vessel for holding pastry. Well, the truth is, if we're not careful, <clears throat> the church can go exactly not exactly that way. Not that it would be tossed around like a Frisbee, but that it would be used for something other than what it was intended to do, that it would take on a secondary use and we would forget our primary purpose. Well, that's exactly what's happened in Galatia. The church, instead of resting on the gospel as a group of people dependent upon Christ, has turned into something else. They've shifted the purpose of the church altogether. Well, that begs the question, what is the church for anyway? There are about as many theories about that as there are churches. But Paul, in writing to the Galatian church, concludes by giving them a description of the church. Who it's for, what it displays, and what it's meant to produce. In summary, Paul writes in Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See, Paul describes the church here in in beautiful terms. He, He calls it a household of faith, a group of people who are committed to each other in a familial relationship. There's a deep love. There's a mutual care for one another that ought to be present in that kind of community. 
The church is a household of faith. That is a group of people. I want to repeat this. A group of people who are committed to each other in a familial relationship. That's deep love, mutual care. That's what the church ought to be. And the question then is what does it mean to, as we have opportunity, to do good to those who are of that household of faith? Is it that we are to do good by giving financially to one another? Are we to do good by making sure that we shovel each other out on snowy days? Is the good that we are to do to say kind things to one another? Well, those all may be true of the household of faith. They are certainly not what Paul has in mind here. Remember our context. We, we spent the first part of Galatians going over the simple nature of the gospel. That, that is the belief in Jesus that is sufficient alone to restore us back to fellowship with God. And in chapter 5, Paul shows us how we know that we are resting in the gospel. And it is uh, by showing us uh, it's a means to, to love God according to the gospel. And that we would display the fruit of the Spirit as a result of that. And interestingly, we learned last week that, that this fruit is meant to be displayed in the interactions that we have within the household of God. The fruit of the Spirit is directly displayed in your relationships in the church. And so this, as you have opportunity, do good to one another, is just a few verses removed from that. And so it must mean something surrounding the mutually evident fruit of the Spirit in the body. Well, let's look at our text. If you have a Bible, open with me to Galatians chapter 6. We'll be in verses 1 through 10 this morning. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor." For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. See, this whole argument flows around the remained fellowship in the body, in the face of sin, in the midst of that sin. It's calling to the church to remain unified with one another under the gospel as they aim toward growth and spur each other on toward that growth in the gospel. See, the church is a family of people who cause one another to grow toward Christ by believing the gospel. That's the church that Paul is revealing here. That's the purpose he has for the church. And in this text, I see at least three facets of the church that are descriptive 
of that purpose. If you have a bulletin, you'll find an outline on the back side. You are surely welcome to follow along as we work through this text. Three facets of the church that are descriptive of its purpose. Number one, the church is for the imperfect, not the impeccable. The church is for the imperfect, not the impeccable. Okay, bear with me on that word impeccable, please. You should know by now that it's really important to alliterate your points. That's a hallmark of preaching. But all I mean to say with that is the church is not for the perfect. It's for the imperfect. You've probably heard the deflection over the years. Maybe you've said it yourself. I want nothing to do with the church. It's full of hypocrites. Of course, a hypocrite is one who who says one thing and does another, whose life does not align with their belief. And that accusation is often lodged at the church. They're a group that thinks they're perfect. But I know better. I see through them. They're not perfect. At least so goes the uh, accusation. Of course, the problem with that is that it begins with the presupposition that the church is designed and composed of perfect people, people who are without sin. Well, if that's the case, then I would have to agree. It's full of hypocrites. Because there is no one in the church who is without sin. No one here is without sin. But we act like it, don't we? Do you feel guilty of that occasionally? You know, Facebook has been accused of being a way of faking your life, staging your circumstances to look a certain way. Pristine lives are in view within the camera lens, but just out of shot, there's a whole bunch of drama that you don't want to share with the world. Well, that's not unique to Facebook It's not unique to humanity. We've been doing that a while, and the church may be the original source of that. We come in once a week, we we put on a face, we act like I, I didn't just yell at my kids in the car right before I walked in the door, and I just smile and walk in as if nothing happened. But that little lie that we sometimes believe about the church, that it's for the perfect, reveals what our flesh wants to be, namely without external sin. That's what Galatia wanted to be in this text. They're trying to justify themselves by being perfect according to the letter of the law. And they are hypocrites because they simply aren't perfect. But notice how Paul addresses them after he calls them back to the true gospel. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too Be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. He doesn't share the gospel with them and then dust off his hands as if that ought to do it. Paul tells them to restore those who are in any transgression, who are caught in sin. They're to include those who are sinners. In other words, the list of desires and fruits of the flesh that he gave in the previous chapter, if you recall last week, that enviness, that that jealousy, that rivalry, that sexual immorality, those things that we are in our most natural state, the church ought to be working to restore those who are caught in those transgressions to be back in their midst. Those people are to be included in the church. It's not a place for people who have cleaned up their act. It's a place for people who are very much in the struggle. And so churches are places that are to be full of broken people who are working out the fact that their lives are often not in line with what they believe is good. 
See, we wouldn't scoff at all the sick people at the hospital, nor would we question its credibility because it's full of sick people. So why do we expect that with the church? It's a hospital for those who know that they're spiritually sick. At least that's how Paul presents it here. And as a recovering Pharisee, I understand churches who act as if they have no sin. They operate in perfectionism. They're places where you would be ostracized if you confessed your sin. But Paul warns against that too. He suggests that that self-righteous attitude that we're so quick to put on is also right in line with the sin that's described in chapter 5. But he continues in chapter 6 of the one who restores the one caught in transgression. Paul says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. See, it's relatively easy to see the sin of the one who's caught in the transgression, isn't it? But on the other side of that, the one who restores can be caught in the transgression of the flesh as well. See, that restoration work that we do to pull our brother back in, it can inflate the ego. It can build the self-righteousness. When I rescue my brother, I develop a Christ complex, believing that I'm the one who saved him. And that results in a user-usey relationship. And we can easily set them up as a foil to our own greatness. Right? They become the Saruman to your Tom Bombadil or the George McFly to your Marty McFly, the Watson to your Sherlock Holmes. Did I cover all the groups? See, keeping the one in sin around only insofar as they make me seem brilliant by comparison. But in the process, we use that person to our, accentuate our own righteousness. See, we're damaged and broken individuals. And in all of this, the church shows that it is a group of tempted and damaged people. Paul doesn't shy away from it. He leans into it. He suggests that we need to be honest with ourselves, that we're drawn one of two ways naturally, to be caught in the open transgression or to justify ourselves by putting our brother down. See, that can mean that the church is a messy place to be, though. It's a place full of people who will hurt you, isn't it? But real expectations change our whole perspective. And if you're frustrated at the sinful reality of the church, then perhaps you're critical because your standard is higher than Christ's standard. See, the church is for the imperfect, not the impeccable. But we're not a family who sits around as broken. We're not an island of misfit toys who have no function and have no hope because the church doesn't stop as an imperfect people. Number two, the church displays the gospel, not grit. The church displays the gospel, not grit. See, whenever we find ourselves in the position of self-righteousness, whenever we find ourselves caught in sin and not wanting to lean into the church, we're displaying a desire to grit out our salvation. What do I mean by that? I mean that we're saying that we must justify ourselves by the law, that I must make myself pleasing to God. That's the flesh talking. That's our most natural position. I desire to earn 
my own affection, to earn my own praise, to earn honor. Or I desire to spurn the law completely because I can't keep it. That's so natural and that's so ordinary to us. But Paul says that the church is not meant to act as that natural man. The church is to be a display of the gospel. But look what he says. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in that spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And then into verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The fact that the church is called to restore the one caught in transgression and is not to display a self-righteous attitude in doing so means that they are displaying something other than grit. Namely, they're displaying the gospel. Or what is the gospel? It's what Paul calls here the law of Christ. The good news that even though you were nothing before God, that you are a worm and a rebel before God, your sin is overcome and your debt has been paid. You've been made a new man. You've been made a righteous man. Not by anything that you did, mind you, but by the work of Jesus Christ and by the free application of that by faith. You've been given Jesus' perfection and he's taken your shame. The work of restoration can only be done in view of that gospel faith. That's why Paul continues in verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. See, only when we believe that the gospel has taken a people who are nothing, who are unable to bring themselves back, but are saved by grace alone, only when we believe that will we truly be able to restore our brother caught in transgression. That means that the one who is spiritual is not the one who is without sin. See, Paul calls the one who is spiritual to restore his brother, but that cannot be the one who is without sin. That makes no contextual sense here. See, the whole argument of Galatians has been to take the church's eye off their ability to obey and to turn to Christ and what he has accomplished by the letter of the law for them. So the one who is spiritual, the one who does the restoring here, is the one who has given up trying to please God by obeying perfectly. And he is to turn to his brother who is still trapped under the weight of the law and to show him how the gospel releases him from the crushing weight of trying to be Jesus. That's how the church displays the gospel. We don't cancel each other when we find each other in sin. Rather, we call each other back to gospel faith that Jesus has done what you could not do. And that brings a kind of fellowship that nothing else can. That's the point of verses 3 through 6. The law of Christ is making oneself nothing. That's what Jesus did. And then bearing others' burdens, slowing yourself down to carry your brother when he's wounded by sin so that you can show him how the gospel has redeemed him. Think of the fellowship that that affords. See, grit cannot do that. 
That's the position we put ourselves in, though, often. See, grit works to climb a ladder. It strives to make oneself perfect. And because the holiness of God is so unreachable, it must put others down to make ourselves feel like we're getting to the top. Well, if grit is trying to climb the ladder to get to God, then the gospel is the good news that by faith you are already positioned at the top because of Jesus. Therefore, you have no need to push your brother down. The gospel is the only thing that gives you real freedom to have real fellowship on equal terms. Now, verse 6 there, I don't know if you caught it, it's a sticky one. But I like to think that a, a better translation of that might be, let the one who has taught the word share a common fellowship with the one who teaches. See, the one who thinks he is something is displaying grit. He violates the gospel, which is the law of Christ. Test yourself, church. Are you gritting it out? For salvation. If you are, you're out of place in the church. Because the church is the collective of the imperfect. Perfected by Jesus' grit. See, one way you can know that you're living by grit is if you aren't pushing into the family of God. If you're staying on the fringes of the church, that can be a sign that you're not displaying the gospel in the way you're living. Think about it, to be in a true gospel community like the one that Paul is describing, to be on equal footing and preserving one another with the gospel, you must first be known in that body, mustn't you? You cannot expect to get much at the hospital without first being diagnosed, without first answering some questions, without first being evaluated. You can't skip that step and expect to be treated reliably. And, and more than you can expect, uh, any more than you can expect to be helped by the local church if you're not known by it. That means that you have to be around. That means you have to be vulnerable to be helped. That means participation is necessary in the things that it offers. See that fellowship time that we do downstairs after the service? It's a nice thing. But we don't do it just because we're friendly. We're friendly. But that's not the only reason. We want to live out this principle. We want to interact with one another so we might know how to best do good to one another, as Paul puts it. So you need to lean into those kinds of things. The Super Bowl party this afternoon, same type of thing. Lean into it. And discipleship groups, by the way, discipleship groups are not just for those with a little bit extra time. Believe it or not, they're not for men who like to get up at 5 a.m., Maybe some of you do, I don't. There are ways that we can become known in the body so that we can live this out. Get involved in those things so that the church, that is, the members of the church, might serve you in urging you and helping you to grow. You must be known for this to benefit you. But second, you must be humble for that to work as well. So you can't be restored if you aren't humble. If you can't accept the help, then the gospel is not on display in your life. Uh, As Tim Keller has pointed out, some gifts require humility to accept. If I gave you a gift, a wrapped up gift, and you opened it up and it was breath mints, that might take a little humility to accept. Because I'm insinuating something, aren't I? Well, the gospel is the grand display of your need. 
It's a cosmic display of your humility and humiliation before God. You had nothing to offer God before you, but you owed him your life's devotion. You owed him perfect obedience that you couldn't give. So Jesus, the perfect son of God, lived that perfect life and gave it to you. You can only accept that by faith. You can only take that in humility. You can only accept that by implicating yourself as having real need. You don't grow out of that church. You don't grow up from there. Humility is the mark of the Christian life. We will always live in need if we live in the body. We have to humbly accept help from one another. In church, we also must be protected. We must be protected. Do you notice in this text, whether you're caught in transgression or whether you're playing the part of the restorer, the church exists in fellowship so that she might protect you. The restorer protects, protects the transgressor by bearing his burden. But the transgressor protects the restorer by pointing out the teacher's self-righteousness. See, they're like two soldiers watching out for each other, watching each other's back to make sure that the enemy will not sneak up on them. There's a symmetry in the church in this way. And in all of it, we strive in fellowship together. But we don't strive for fellowship's sake. That's not the end of the church. Because the church is for the imperfect, not the impeccable. The church displays the gospel and not grit. And the church produces development and not dormancy. The church produces development and not dormancy. Paul continues in verse 7, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. There's a lot of seeming dormancy in the church. See, we gather week after week in this old building. We sing songs, we listen to sermons, and we go about our affairs when we leave. And the common means of grace that God has given in those things they can easily become, well, common, can't they? We can even wonder if the church is really the best place to grow at all. Maybe mission work would be a little bit better, or maybe if I invested my time in something else, I'd grow more. But Paul says here that the church is God's primary appointed vessel for the growth of his people. That's why Paul says that God is not mocked. Growth comes in due season, by God's means. And not by yours. The means are typical. They're same to us. But they're not dormant, says Paul. Sowing and reaping is a common theme in the Bible. You've probably heard that before. Uh, Sowing here is investing in all of the above ways that we've talked about. It's applying the gospel to your involvement in the church. But if it's not there, there will be no meaningful growth that comes from the church. This is the vessel for growth in your life, not forsaking the gathering, as some are in the habit of doing, and continuing to know and to be known by the church, by centering your life in the church. And that's hard sometimes, isn't it? Because growth takes time. It's slow. It's imperceptible, 
at times. But I think that's the brilliance of the sowing and reaping theme in Scripture. Sowing and and reaping have a significant gap between them, don't they? I grew up in the corn, a child of the corn, some might say. Not in the Stephen King sense, but, but among the corn nonetheless. In Nebraska. Corn is an amazing thing. The, the Midwest is full of open land. If you look around here, you can't possibly imagine it. But it's flat, it's straight, it's even, it's ripe for cultivation. But the process of cultivation is long. But lots of cultivation must happen. It, it begins the year before when, when they disc the field. They dig all the former roots out of the field and then they, they burn them off all at one time. They tend the ground, they plow it, and they prepare it for planting then. And then in early spring, they plant. And what an exciting day the planting is. And then you know what they do? They wait. And they wait. But it's not an empty waiting. A lot of fertilizing, a lot of spraying, a lot of watering. Have you seen these sprinklers that they have in the Midwest? Some are as much as a half a mile long. They travel around the field on a center pivot and they rotate around that field day after day after day. And then there's more waiting. And church, your personal growth can be that way too. You seem to still be responding to your spouse with irritability, with anger. You have strong passions and and lusts that overtake you. You collapse under the fear of man and you act to shame of the gospel in public. You know, the fruit may not come for a long time. Development is slow. You won't see immediate results all the time. There's early mornings in cultivation. The awkward and painful vulnerability, confession of sin. That's foreign to us, isn't it? It hurts when we begin to do it. And the gospel life is often marked by a failure to see reciprocal results. Sometimes the fruit is years away. But suddenly, after a period of what seems like nothing, a small green thread breaks the surface. Now, how much cultivation and growth came before that plant sprang up? And when it's finally visible, it's the first sign of victory. Something that would normally cause you to blow up at your spouse doesn't phase you suddenly in the moment. Maybe a moment of victory in the fight over lust When you choose to remember the promises of God's goodness. Maybe a small word about the love of Christ to your co-worker. Small beginnings, but the result of a tremendous amount of cultivation and growth. And it's all taking place under the surface until that day by the grace of God. And then one day you look out. You're driving down those country roads and the corn is huge. Suddenly it's so high that you cannot see around those long country roads. It's over six feet tall. It's over the top of your car. You're surrounded by the corn. In fact, you look back and you wonder, how did this corn get so tall? But you know that the Spirit did the work in your life as you worked out your salvation with fear and trembling. And the fruit is real. And you look back and you marvel about how God has transformed you as you leaned into His appointed means as you leaned into the church. There's many testimonies of such goodness in this body alone. God's at work here in our midst. And it is gospel growth, the kind that comes from God 
And because it comes from God, it cannot fail. See, maybe COVID has made you dormant. Maybe it's other circumstances. Paul says to lean into the church and watch what God will do as we live in the grace of God together, challenging one another, living in light of his gospel. Sometimes growth can seem like nothing is happening and suddenly it's there. But the church is not a group that has resigned itself to sin. And it is not a place where nothing is supposed to happen. It's a place, a group that's devoted to growth. How have you seen God grow you over the long haul? As you look back over your Christian life, where do you see the threads springing up? Where do you see great growth? And if you have not seen growth, will you trust in God's appointed means? Do not be discouraged. Your presence here is a small beginning, but it's a small beginning of the great growth that God intends to do in all his people. Do not grow weary in doing good. See, if we do not allow the church to go the way of the Frisbee, that is to devolve into something that it was never intended to be, and if by God's grace we keep the purpose of the church, its purpose, we cannot fail. Its purpose is rooted in the resurrection of Christ. If we do not allow the church to become a social club or a hub of self-righteousness or a recovery group where we're simply left to feel better in some kind of mutual exposure. But if we can be exposed and constantly covered with gospel truth and remain centered in that gospel, we cannot fail because we're living in the light of that gospel, that good news of the victory of Christ. When David engaged in such sin as he did with Bathsheba, that is adultery and murder and everything else that I'm sure came out of that, he more or less got away with it. But it required a man coming to him and bearing that burden with him, calling him back to repentance, doing the good that Paul has in mind here, calling him back to the gospel. See, if David, a man after God's heart, needs others to walk with him, as he works out his salvation. How much more do we, church? Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for the glory of your church, the glorious display of your gospel at work. Father, we do not claim to be perfect by our presence here, but we claim to be people who are in need of recovery, of restoration, And we are a people who, by faith, trust the work of Jesus. Father, would you give us the grace to push in when we feel like pulling out. Give us the grace to grow within this body. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.